0: I am Haley, And I'm Emma. And welcome to This Shakespeare is Gay, a podcast that goes play by play to prove that every Shakespeare play is a little bit gay. This week, Henry VI, part three. I think I won you over this week
1: well you and my problematic boyfriend Richard III <laughs> I mean yes
0: the play the play did it itself I don't mean to take credit for no uh, but you
1: you and Richard equally um but yeah well and Warwick actually works in there as well
0: and Henry I mean it's a great play They're all in
1: there it is a great play it is a great play I it's full of things that I had forgotten about, like I had remembered as being really good gems in sort of this series. And then I forgot that a bunch of them were in this play. And then I was like, oh yeah, oh yeah. Like, it's like, it was like listening to an album that I've heard before and really liked, but haven't listened to in sequence for a long time. And I was honestly just like Shakespeare, my dude, banger after banger.
0: It really, it really is. I mean, I don't, I hesitate to get too kind of like fanfic. I mean, no, I don't. I like, I love to get too fanfictiony.
1: There about you go, embrace Shakespeare's
0: it. writing. I'm just not allowed to in my job. Um, but when I am here on this unprofessional podcast, you're <laughs> uh, in your
1: fake job, we encourage that.
0: Yeah, Well, yeah, It's just you really do feel him coming into something that feels a little more recognizably Shakespearean yes. in this play. I, I think.
1: I feel that too. I feel that too. Yeah.
0: And like, you can, I mean, I think there's a lot of debate about when, where some of the like comedies fit into the order of events here, Mm -hmm. but like, it feels like he's finding something really true to himself in this play.
1: Yeah. 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 And, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about a bunch that there, there are, episodes and characters and and concerns in this play that are really clear sort of antecedents to things that he'll tease out later. But there are also things that really have like an integrity of themselves. And you know?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I think that it is uh, it is not, I think we'll make yeah, as you say, we'll make this joke, but it is not just a first draft of things he'll do better later. It's something that it's really unique and different from anything he does later in a, a really exciting and compelling ways.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think it takes what we talked about in our first episode in this series that we did last time of part two. I think it takes the sense of instability, like the core instability of the world, and does the thing that is, to my mind, the great Shakespeare thing, which is that it takes a, a mood that is maybe political or like social or broad and makes it feel really personal. Yes, yes. And I think this play is like the masterpiece of that.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think something that when I worked on these plays, again, we sort of conflated part two and part three. So I haven't Mm -hmm. ever gotten to do the entirety of either of them, even though I will continue to argue they deserve it. one of the things we talked about is that like one of the really kind of striking structural features of this play that makes it feel kind of different from what comes later and hard I think for like modern audiences and artists to tackle mm-hmm. is that Henry the kind of brilliance of it is that because Henry isn't the king he should be there's yeah. also a protagonist vacuum
1: in the play. Yes, that is such a great Yes, at uh, the Yes. Continue. I have a thought about that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And just that so much of the structure is every character kind of noticing this and being like, well, maybe I'm the protagonist. And then they get
1: to be for like a couple scenes and then they get Mm -hmm. killed. And then someone else is like, hang on, what if it's me? That's exactly right. And the thing is, I think that that is actually the reason for the kind of rising fall wave structure that I talked about last time is that the sort of waves that rise and crash in the Henry VI plays, do so because of the protagonist vacuum. Something rises and then falls and rises and then falls. And Henry, more than ever before, basically exists apart as an observer for so much of this play because he has uh abdicated his own role in his own story and so he's just kind of off in the corner like you know being affected by events and literally dragged along like a prop like at this point like so in so much of the action of henry VI, henry himself is just like a barrel of potatoes that various people lug from place to place <laughs> you know what i mean he's literally just like okay like people have texts that are like okay i'm bringing henry to this you know but like he's not an active participant in his own life. So other people are just like, what if it was me? What if it was me? What if it was me? And then really the play in my view, I think a way of reading it, especially because of what comes after is that the person who wins the protagonist vacuum contest is Richard and then he gets a play.
0: Yeah, basically. But it's, it's, it's a structure that is not familiar. It's not Aristotelian. It's not kind of anything that you can hang your hat on.
1: And it's and- not properly linear, even like a lot of the other history plays. It's not linear.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I think it's really, it's really exciting. And as you say, you yeah. do sort of almost have this kind of uh, commentary through line of Henry, but it's like his passivity and his sort of failure to ever really step into that role in the yeah. way that, as we'll talk about, I'm sure, like Richard II gets mm-hmm. sidelined and then continues to insist on his protagonistness. Yes. Anyway, and Henry doesn't do that.
1: No, because Henry, I mean, you know, I think Henry had some text in part two that we sort of talked about last time. I mean, you know, he had text in that area that was already like, you know, we've had the bit of I'd rather be a subject than a king, you know, I mean, like we've had hit abdication language before, but in Henry, you know, in three, He goes so far several times as to basically be like you know this is where we get the i'd rather be a shepherd speech and it's also like there's sort of an i'd rather be dead speech you know and it's just like he's not uh he's not for it he's not here
0: yeah i mean one of the things i kind of feel like this play is about and maybe we'll find a way to argue that this is queer is like Mm. henry exists to be like what is wrong with someone who wants to be king yeah. And the kind of rise and fall of everybody else who wants that is like, there's something wrong with all of you.
1: There, There is. There is. Yeah. It's interesting. That might be a good framework to sort of like, as the waves rise and fall, as we talk about them, it might be interesting to do a sort of diagnosis on each <laughs> one of like, so what's wrong, what's wrong with Warwick? What's wrong with Clifford? It's very RSC of us. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's so funny. Yeah, that's the very that's the Anthony Share playbook of yeah. what, what We'll get our
0: DSM5 out and see how we can yeah. diagnose
1: everybody. But like, you know, on a sort of spiritual level, I think that is the question of like what is wrong with this person.
0: Yeah, Which and one? it's sort of the reason that Henry can't kind of be a shadow protagonist in the way that I think you sort of as modern viewers we kind of want him to be in order to give the play a spine. Yeah. But because then there'd be something wrong with him too. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting. There is, I mean, you know, insofar as you can consider someone who the play is named after, but who refuses to actually sort of be an actor there there's that's, what's wrong with him really. I mean, that's his version of it is like, he just refuses to give satisfaction to anyone. sort of including us dramatically.
0: Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think, something to point out, and this can lead us really nicely maybe into, I think we'll do what we did last time and sort of summarize the plot chunk by chunk, act Mm. by act as we go, because a lot happens. Um, But the sort of focus of the first act is the character after whom the play was named in its original printing, which is the Duke of York. Right. um, Right. Who also fails to be the protagonist for different reasons. Yeah. Um, But we open with another... I think absolute banger of an opening scene scene. uh, picking up kind of right where we left off at the end of part two in certain ways and not in other ways, but, you know, kind of narratively it comes right after, um, Mm. where York and his sons and allies have basically crashed the throne room and are getting ready to, to proclaim York King. Um, Henry shows up, they argue, they kind of easily overbear poor Henry, both with logic and also snipers, um, (laughs) It's a very yeah. like red wedding imagery where it's sort of like, oh, by the way, here are all my archers.
1: Right. Yeah. It's a two-pronged attack. It looks like a guy just swaggily sitting in a chair, but really he has an army.
0: Yeah. Um, and Henry basically <laughs> agrees, fine, let me be king until I die and you will be my heir. And Henry's allies get very angry about this, go to find Margaret, who <laughs> storms in and is like, I will lead the army then, bye. Bye. Um, takes their son who didn't exist before with her uh, and (laughs) basically go to meet the York family in battle. York is also being kind of incited by his sons to immediately ignore this treaty and start a fight. So everybody is super keen to just get fighting, which they do, resulting in the death both of York's youngest child son, who should not have been on a battlefield at all, and ultimately... York himself in Margaret's most famous scene, if any of her scenes could be called famous. Uh in the, one. the series, where she captures York and taunts him, mocks him, wipes his face with the handkerchief covered in the blood of his dead child, and finally oh yeah. crowns him with like paper and then yeah. kills him.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's epic. Yeah, yeah. It's epic, man. Girl boss. It it's girl boss behavior. <laughs> Queen Margaret, gaslight, gatekeep, girl boss.
0: Um she does it all. She really does it all. They are literally underneath the gates of York. And then she puts his head on top of them. Uh so yeah.
1: Incidentally, I did as I did text you, I did have the impulse, and I didn't do it, to do an actual head count of Henry Mm. Six Part Three because there are so many heads rolling around. At, At one point, it's literally like head tennis. It's just like Replace that head with this head. Like, yeah. there's a lot of heads flying around in this play. And frankly, that's the move.
0: It is the move. Well, because as they learn, it's the only way to stop your opponent from having a really dramatic dying speech about you.
1: Yeah, that's right. You got to cut right. the head off. You got to cut that head right off or they'll keep talking.
0: Yeah, but mm-hmm. so that's act one is basically like the rise and fall of her other title character, the Duke of York. And by the end of act one, he's dead
1: yeah 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 and it sets up i think thematically the major concerns that really echo through the whole rest of the play you know i mean just to just to sort of name it um the first thing that's on my kind of notes sheet for act one is it just says henry six part three who's your daddy
0: (laughs) it is i mean this is the thing that i was thinking about too is like in this very first scene what we see is this like weird disruption of succession and we've talked a lot about how um lineage and primogeniture and all these things and the ways that characters like reject those things are often very queer and I think that in the kind of most broad kind of academic sense there's something queer about the ways in which all of the traditional lines of kind of familial succession get exploded Mm -hmm. in the first scene of this play
1: completely exploded and also like you know just to kind of maybe begin with Henry because I found myself thinking a lot about him and you know we talked about his queerness and stuff last time, and like you said, he you know he has a son that begins alive in part three, where we're like, where'd you come from? And you know, also hovering over the son is also sort of the question of like, literally, who is your daddy? But um, that's a thing. But one of the things that really struck me in that light, in in like the first scene, is that everybody, including Henry himself, um, calls Henry an unnatural father. Mm -hmm. because at, like you said, in this incredible tableau that Shakespeare sets up, that is just like York is in the throne, surrounded by all of his dudes. Henry comes in like a poor little baby. I picture Henry is like Linus to me, like dragging a blanket through the castle, through the castle.
0: Yeah, though, can I just make an addendum that I think this will feed into your point? Henry comes in with two sons of men York and his sons have killed like the reason that his backers are there is another sort of like he's comes in he's like look guys it's the guy who killed your dads
1: that's right that's right and then York is like what you gonna do about it and Henry sort of very weakly and queasily is like get out of my chair and York's like no (laughs) and then Henry this is what's so kind of um you know this is the punk ass move Uh, that you know Margaret gets so mad about is that Henry basically volunteers the solution that disinherits his own son and everybody including his opponents his allies and then himself are just like wow, that's a wild thing to do. You know, Margaret calls him an unnatural father. And then there's an exchange where, where, you know, Warwick says to him, why, why should you sigh my Lord? And Henry says, not for myself, Lord Warwick, but my son whom I unnaturally shall disinherit. And it's just like, yeah, but you decided to do this.
0: Yeah. And I think the, the word unnatural is so important
1: to highlight
0: because it is just like, the passage from father to son is the natural order exactly and like i think that there's you know sort of old-fashioned kind of understandings of the narrative shakespeare is building across all his history plays which like um but still like is that the unnatural Mm -hmm. disruption of succession that was henry the fourth Disinher- like deposing Richard the yeah. is the kind of primal sin that is echoing through the rest of English history only to be restored by the Tudor succession in the end and right. like I again like I don't think Shakespeare's kind of telling a story that that is that tidy but there is something there of like in this first scene succession mm-hmm. this unnatural act kind of destroys the idea of orderly succession for the rest of yes. the play and now we're in this unnatural space
1: and also you know yeah unnatural contains so many connotations you know I mean like I think of course there is an argument that there is something there because we've argued before I think what well, we certainly did in our old podcast about the fact that um that heterosexuality like you know um primogeniture and heterosexuality are the same and if you fight one you fight the other because the point surely of all of these stories is to like build dynasty and to preserve legacy for your heirs and the betrayal of one's own heirs could be argued as a queer act you know what I mean of just like I actually don't care about the continuance of my house I don't care about the legacy that my son will inherit from me like you know I mean that's um in the context of the world or the political and social fabric around him, that is like a perversion in a way.
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think that, something really interesting comes of that when Margaret comes in with their son, which yeah. a, an amazing entrance where someone's like, oh shit, Margaret's coming. And Henry's like, I'm going to go. And then she's like, don't go anywhere. Get back here. Yeah. Right. And then the kid is like, dad, why? Yeah. And then the kid, he has this line, like until I ha- I can't remember the exact mm-hmm. line and I don't have it with me, but it's something like, mm-hmm. I'm going to go win back my inheritance. And until then I'll follow her. And there's yeah. this really strong sense of like, he is not Henry's son. He's Margaret's son. Like it's a matrilineage.
1: And, it literally like transfers. I know
0: exactly. And it's like we almost never see him and Henry together again. And it whereas um he, he's also named Edward, which is right. frustrating. Yes, yes. Um, but uh, baby Edward uh baby as opposed Edward. to grown-up Edward, who we'll talk about a lot shortly. Yeah. Um, Edward Lancaster. Uh. Yeah. yeah is so firmly attached to Margaret, and kind of when you Mm -hmm. think about it, I mean, this is something that I have written about, so.
1: Yes, we're Uh, treading on the dissertation territory. I know, I
0: know, we're we're in there. Someday this might be published. Um, (laughs) You know, thinking about him as a, like, boy- actor like an apprentice Mm. who is kind of assigned to an older actor to kind of trail through the play it's like that clearly the relationship at work there's a Mm -hmm. scholar named Evelyn Tribble who like talks a lot more about like how those kind of on stage training relationships Mm. worked um but this like seems to be a really clear example of that so sort of on Mm. multiple levels it is like Mm. Edward is being trained by and shaped by and raised by Mm. Margaret only
1: that's amazing. That's really interesting to have that kind of meta textual level of it. Um, there's a couple of other things about the kind of blowing up of that, the, even the like the the sort of pose of the three of them as a nuclear family that explodes in this in this scene. You know, it's like um, not to jump ahead of myself, but I Richard, my uh, homeboy, makes our sort of concerns explicit. I think somewhere later in Act Two, uh, he kind of gestures at baby edward and he says whoever got thee there thy mother stands yeah yeah and you know and it, and everybody's like "Ooh," <laughs> you know i mean like that's the fact that he um that he says it out loud. I was like, oh, I was right to, I was right to wonder about that. But also Margaret, when she leaves, not only does she take over, is like, okay, well, I'll take over the army. I'll do the job that you won't do. She literally divorces him. She uses the word divorce in the speech. Like, you know, she very publicly in this scene is like, okay, I'm leaving you. I'll do the army and I'm taking the kid. (laughs) Like,
0: yeah, I mean, he's completely removed from, Well, because it is this idea of like heterosexuality and inheritance being the same thing. It's like, well, okay, if you're not gonna do this to have a son, then what's the point of you being married to a woman anyway?
1: Exactly right. And the woman in question is just like, you know, and it's also a little bit more of this energy of Margaret being like, okay, well then if there's basically, if there's no use, if there's no point of me as a woman in this marriage, I'll go take your job. And basically kind of, you know, there's, she has text where she says to him, uh you know after he's allowed York uh you know this thing of when I die you can be king and I'll name you my heir Margaret says had I been there, which I'm a silly woman, the soldiers should have tossed me on their pikes before I would have granted to that act but thou preferst thy life before thine honor yeah which is you know hardcore language but it's more of this thing too of like well I would have done it better and differently but now that you've done that I'm gonna go you know take on yeah. the burden yeah
0: yeah I mean, yeah. And f- uh, speaking of like unnatural, yes. then as she kind of moves forward into the battle, that takes up the rest of the act. Yeah. You know, the especially in the scene about York. I mean, where we begin is like after the mm. scene, we move into York's sons kind of trying to persuade their dad to step up and like not wait for Henry to die, basically, <laughs> which I feel like yeah. is another kind of inversion of The kind Mm -hmm. of it's the father should be directing the sons, not the sons directing the father. Like it's just a little thing, but feels in keeping. Yeah. And when they hear that Margaret's rolling up with her army, like they're super dismissive and are just like, "A woman's general, what need we fear?" says Richard, and like all this language about that. But then by the time we get into battle and they're actually encountering her, it shifts into like you unnatural. I mean, it's a famous tiger's heart wrapped in a woman's hide. Like, you are not a woman I was going to say,
1: like, you know, there is, I, w- I wondered how we felt about that, the potential, the queerness of Margaret in her own right, of just like as a, a complete subversion of what a woman is supposed to do and be. And it's named as such, you know, the the that great line, you know, Tiger's heart wrapped in a woman's hide. In that same speech that York has, he says, they literally do the comparison. He says, women are soft, mild, pitiful, and flexible. Thou, stern, obdurate, flinty, rough remorse yeah which is just like it's so black and white for somebody within the play to look at her and be like women are like this you are like this
0: (laughs) I mean it's both I mean it's the 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 couple it's both halves of the couple are exactly just kind of throwing off whatever kind of gender identification they were supposed to have Henry is not (laughs) a father he's an unnatural man he's an unnatural leader and Margaret is not a woman so it's sort of like
1: and she's an unnatural leader in the other way.
0: Yeah, by being yeah. a leader whereas he's yeah. unnatural by failing to be a leader. And so it's sort of yeah, like what yeah. are either of them then?
1: Yeah, and you know the word unnatural like we've talked about, you know, I think it has a connotation that sort of spreads its tendrils throughout the whole family. And then again, I think you're right that it's in the York family as well. You know, there there is something deeply unnatural about the sons and their relationship to their father. And also though like I was thinking about how we were, you know, we were speaking last time about, about, uh, you know, in part two, there's the whole episode with Eleanor and the witchcraft and stuff. And it's like, there, this is also a world that sort of pulses with like, it's not entirely a human world. And this is a play that ends with the three suns thing. And we'll talk about it later. But like, the whole cosmos is sort of like, this is sort of an unnatural world, like, because of the things that the humans have done, like, nature itself is going to respond in an unnatural way later.
0: It's very Midsummer Night's Dream. Like, Because we've screwed up the succession so completely. Uh huh. Now the supernatural is kind of leaking into the world.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's not, not to, to, it's in a, it's related in my mind a bit to what you said before about like, if you want to kind of track the super arc through the history plays of the fact that like, when Henry Ford deposes Richard, it breaks the world. Like, it's interesting to look for the, for the sense of that in these plays, even though I know they were written first about the ways in which the world is broken. You know what I mean? Of just like, it is unnatural has a lot of contexts. Yeah.
0: It's true. But I also just feel like looking at taking these plays for themselves, like they do the breaking in the moment too.
1: Yeah, they do. Yeah. Like
0: we talk about that deposition because that is like the reason they're claiming for why Henry doesn't, isn't Mm -hmm. the real king, but it's like really the unnatural act that kicks Mm -hmm. it off is Henry's choice to disinherit his son.
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 It's really, really interesting. It opens a lot of doors and then the rest of the play sort of continues to fall through them.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you have anything else to add about this kind of long battle scene (laughs) that we get or shall we move into act two?
1: um, Just the line. I think the most, there's a lot of kind of, you know, uh, almost montage battle sequences you know in this play when we get into battle stuff which is really interesting and in a way lends itself to that wave structure of like the sort of tides of violence that also rise and fall throughout the play I find really Mm. interesting it's like you sort of only get to know like there's people are sort of upstarts for a minute and then they rise and then they're cut down and then that's part of the protagonist vacuum but it's like it's not like people recede like they're killed yeah and the only line um that I wanted to kind of bring in is while we're talking about dads you know somebody i don't even remember who somewhere in this battle says my fa- thy father slew my father therefore die
0: yeah this is the clifford and rutland scene. So of rutland course. is the youngest son of york who we haven't met before who is like basically framed as being a literal child yeah and clifford whose dad died at the end of the last play and he had an amazing speech right. about it right. um is now the kind of new i mean he's almost like the richard of team Lancaster and that he's the kind of completely immoral gleefully violent terror who is like I will do anything I will kill anyone and the first thing he does is kill a little kid which comes back to haunt everybody.
1: Clifford is off the chain (laughs) frankly like yeah but I just that line thy father slew, my father therefore die is really just such a chilling encapsulation of the whole mess, I feel like.
0: Absolutely, well, especially because what it's in response to, I believe, is a line that's something like, I've never done you wrong.
1: Yeah, and it's a literal child begging for his life in a really nasty scene, you know, and that's the thing that Clifford says before he stabs him, you know, it's horrible. Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, it's another form, right, of kind of rejecting the idea of succession and the idea yeah. of a future,
1: yeah exactly exactly it's like if this is a world where you butcher children on the battlefield like what are we even doing yeah yeah
0: yeah um yeah and so then it turns out what we're doing is making edward edward york uh <laughs> king yes because yeah team lancaster loses this battle um yes. And even though the Duke of York is killed, kind of Edward is a I mean, I guess, well, no, I'm sorry. I've gotten myself off track. They do Mm. win the battle. York is killed, but his York son, Edward, Mm -hmm. soon to be Edward IV is like, oh my gosh, this is horrible, but I am going to step up. I'm going to lead the Mm. cause. We're not surrendering. I will be King. Um, They have a kind of weird parley with, henry's team where once again like the question of how much margaret sucks is for some reason like now everything's margaret's fault i mean in their view because she killed their dad um but it's very much he was just like if you hadn't been so rude this wouldn't be happening which is like (laughs) edward that's just not true
1: yeah yeah that parlay is pretty crazy and edward says to edward says to margaret too he says um uh, and I think Henry must be there to be gestured, yeah. at. but Edward says, "You that are king, though he do wear the crown."
0: Yes, yeah, and it's,
1: that is like, wow,
0: it's great. And I think later at one point they're like, "Well, we're leaving because you won't let Henry talk. That's why we're. That's why we have to go fight." And it's like, that's not why. What? No. But they're just so determined uh, to blame her for everything, yeah. um, and they kind of segue into yet another battle, which this time Henry and Co. lose, and at the mm-hmm. end of which. Edward is declared king basically. Um, and that is act two. Um,
1: yeah. Yeah. And so
0: it's, yeah. I mean, I think something that I found to kind of build on this idea of kind of parents and lineage, Uh I think one Uh of the really interesting things that happens is when Warwick kind of delivers the news to the boys that their dad is dead mm. and that Edward's going to have to step up. Yeah. Um, Edward's like, okay, I'll be king and you'll be my new dad. <laughs> and it's yeah, like, it's literally <laughs> two problems here. One, he's not your dad. Two, you're supposed
1: to be king. You don't need a dad. This is the thing, dude. It's so interesting. Is that everybody in this play is just like, who's my dad? <laughs>
0: who is my dad? I mean, and like, we have to, it doesn't come up as much in this play as I feel like it mm. did in part two, but it's mm-hmm. like the specter of Henry's dad, who he never yep. knew who yep. was Henry the the great, the wonderful, you know, the best <laughs> the king best. ever is <laughs> yeah. like the ghost of like, the er missing dad
1: it so is like everybody's dadless since since henry five is dead it's really england
0: is dadless
1: england is da- okay so actually i have that's a really good segue to something i want to talk about so but first as a sidebar somebody says so there's a really good rebuttal back in act one where henry's talking about something he's talking about france and it's one of those like you fucked up everything that your dad like worked for somebody literally says talk not of france sith thou have lost it all <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Just like there yeah. are so many continual reminders where, like, anybody mentions Henry V and everybody else is like, Henry, you don't get to talk about that because you undid his entire legacy. Like, you know, it's so funny. But the thing that I wanted to talk about okay, so we'll talk lots more about Warwick and kind of who he is to the York sons and like all of that kind of probably as we move further into the play. But before we like leave act two, I want to talk about the anonymous sons and fathers scene. Yes. In the battle. We have to talk. Okay. About this. Yes.
0: Let me, let me, I'll set it up because it this up. is, I think the most famous scene probably in the play, except for yeah. the molehill scene with Margaret yeah. and York. I keep yeah. talking as if anyone's heard of any scenes in this play. Yeah. Um, but in his guise of, so they're about to go into battle. Mm-hmm. Um, Margaret's literally like, Henry, can you leave? And Clifford's like, yeah, she fights better when you're not here. He um, does say that. And so Henry wanders off and gets found sort of sitting alone, having the trademark Shakespeare, I wish I wasn't king, I'd rather be dead speech that every king in Shakespeare has. Yep. Um, and as he's sitting there, witnesses these two incredibly surreal parallel scenes where two soldiers enter Mm -hmm. both looting bodies Mm -hmm. one of them realizes the body he's looting is his own father the other realizes that the body he's looting is his own son yeah um who by various kind of convoluted means they both describe have ended up on opposite sides of the war as each other and henry kind of watches this in horror and is just
1: like i did this (laughs) Well, and the, the really interesting thing that it does textually. So yeah, it's, it's mind blowing as a piece of, of, of theater, you know, like it's a, it's incredibly strange, surreal, dramatic choice. And they're just, they're nameless in the text. They're just son and father, which yeah. is sort of amazing. And like, you know, first one of them, the son speaks realizes he's killed his father. It's devastating. Like, and then the father speaks over the body of his son. They're both like completely torn up and full of regret and then the thing that happens at the end is that it turns into a sort of textual braid with henry commentating where the son is speaking to the father the father is speaking to the son and henry is speaking to the country yeah and it's like it could not be more poetically explicit than that because henry is like both the country's son and father And and he has failed at being both because he's failed at being a son because he's just, you know, completely in the shadow of his father's legacy. Like, you know, he has undone everything that his father did. He's looked on as a failure. And he's also a failure as a father because he's disinherited his own child and, like, failed to do the thing. And so it's really just, like, it's an amazing and kind of oblique but also still really clear way of Shakespeare sort of, and I love when he does this, when something is like, this play feels like it moves like gangbusters, you know, it just goes and goes and goes. The momentum is like, you know, swift and um, brutal. And then I love when he sort of pauses for a minute and then introduces a sort of like almost interstitial, like a reverie moment where you get to actually just let the thematic material breathe and then the play moves again.
0: Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. And it's, yeah. I mean, it feels like I'd say the culmination, but we continue to be obsessed with these questions the rest of the play, but it is a culmination of this, like just sense of like Mm
1: -hmm.
0: every form of creating lineage has been disrupted and is no longer functioning. And like Mm -hmm. all hope of all hope of a future generation carrying something positive, forward is yeah. gone and all hope of properly honoring the past is gone because the sons who should have moved forward have been killed and the fathers who did great things before are being it killed too killed.
1: yeah exactly it's just and there's something this is like a weird uh extrapolation of that but there's something so thrilling about the instability of this play and the sort of the unnaturalness of it that you've just really helps me crystallize, which is that like, if you've killed the future and you've killed the past, the play is really exciting because it lives so relentlessly in the present.
0: Yes, yeah, I think that's so real. And I think that's where we get that sense of pace. Yes. And like that sense, I mean, I think it fits into the kind of protagonist vacuum mm-hmm. thing as well, because it's just like in every moment, everyone's like, well, wait, hang on. I just, mm-hmm. I'm, in the sp- I'm in the spotlight uh, now here. <laughs> I guess this is my time. Yeah. I get like, I guess I'll step forward because no one else seems to be, I don't. And yeah, that Mm. just complete dislocation. I mean, like we've Mm. gotten, we've gotten, you know, serious.
1: (laughs) And so I'll break it up
0: with the joke question I'd been going to ask, (laughs) but it's not a joke. I'm just like, is war gay?
1: excellent. I'm so glad we're here. I mean, because I
0: think I mean, the thing I'd say is, like, I feel like we've had one answer to that question with Hotspur, for whom war is gay, because war is the place where he
1: can be gay, basically. (laughs) Like, it's a place where
0: he doesn't have to worry about there being women. He can just bond with his bros and die in their arms.
1: I mean, honestly that, but you know, I think, I think I was going to say yes, because it's a place without women, except for brilliantly in this play, it's not a place without women because one of the like commanding generals is a woman. And I think that's why they hate her so much is that there is like the undercurrent is like war is supposed to be a place without you and you shouldn't
0: be here. (laughs) I think that's totally true. But I also think that like, unlike the way that war operates for Hotspur, for whom Uh his enemy is as beloved yeah as his ally yeah that's not true
1: here I mean and
0: as we could talk about this maybe as we move into act three but people Mm -hmm. love neither their enemies nor their allies here there's no sense I mean the one kind of sense we get is this scene right after we find out that York is dead and I guess we'll get another version of it in a minute yeah um where the brothers kind of create this bond and this unity and as we said kind of try to reconstitute a family unit with their new daddy warwick um but it that doesn't work
1: no it doesn't work for a lot of reasons but i mean is war gay in this play i i'm I'm trying to pause on that and see if there's another answer that's distinct from the henry four answer and like
0: I think if I, t- while you think I'll say the, the, the thing that made me ask the question is yeah. the way that it so relentlessly rips up the structures of standard, again, succession and genealogy and all yeah. these things we're talking about, the way it forces us into this world with no um kind of rubric, mm-hmm. no sense yeah. of the kind of usual family mm-hmm. structures or yeah. marital structures like- you know, no linear path forward, no, no no reason to be married, no reason for like Margaret and Henry don't need each other. And I think what we're going to get at the, where we kind of leave things at the end of act two is with Warwick saying like, yay, Edward, you're King. Now I'm going to go to France and get you a wife. This'll be great. And it's like,
1: yes, this will go well.
0: We can reintroduce normal life and heterosexuality and like usual relations into the world again for three.
1: sure. And I know that that's the bridge to take us into act three and I'm going to let us go there, but I no, think no, my, no. Uh, my, my other, my other answer, I think, cause I think you're totally right. The disruption of the, of all of those structures is totally partly why it's gay. I think the other reason it might feel a little gay is something that will also take us forward, um, which is war can be a conduit for advancing your inappropriate desires for things
0: yes I mean that's the the origin of
1: this war right and you know what I mean I think that's also something we've talked about as being queer and it's going to continue to be important you know for certain characters in this play more than others but like the way that you get closer to the things that you want if they are not part of the lawful you know ordained universe is through violence
0: yes yeah yeah I think that, yeah, those two things lead us perfectly yeah. into act three, where Edward is king now. Also, <laughs> breaking news, Edward's a huge slut. Um, <laughs> and we've had jokes about it up to this point, but it turns out it's super true. Yeah. Um, and kind of wow over... <laughs> Henry's having a subplot about being kind of captured by different people and like shunted around to different prisons. But uh, the uh, York brothers are paying absolutely no attention to him whatsoever because they are caught up in Edward's marriage drama by which he, after dispatching Warwick to France to find him a wife, finds his own wife uh, <laughs> through closer kind of- to home. Closer to home, <laughs> wild and inappropriate scene. Um, yeah, so
1: we should talk about that, right? The, the yeah, Edward yeah, can I, well,
0: I'll finish our little recap of what oh, happens yeah. in the act and then we right. can guess. There's a lot to say. Good, um, okay. But much like Margaret's marriage to Henry back in part two, uh, Edward's marriage to Elizabeth kind of fractures the court, makes his brothers very upset. Uh, we meet their other brother, George, also. <laughs> he exists and is here now. Um Gosh. And also when news gets to France, Warwick is furious at kind of having been betrayed by this sudden change. And he seizes the opportunity to like join forces with Margaret and they prepare to turn, uh, return to England and reclaim Margaret's, I mean, Margaret's Margaret's throne, Margaret's (laughs) throne, but Henry's, but Margaret's. Um,
1: Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. And so in the midst of that, uh, yeah we kind of hear from some other perspectives on uh roots Hmm. to the crown i guess
1: yes yes
0: (laughs) sorry i was like i started talking and then i was like i don't know where this sentence is going i got distracted by my own note which says richard invents a new form of succession called murder which i think just like uh fits really well with what you were saying uh
1: yes a minute
0: ago because this is also the act where we get our first glimpse of richard as The Richard we will know him as, who is scheming against his brothers. And I think this is what I was thinking of when I said that, like, the image of, like, kind of fraternal love uh, that is forged on the battlefield is, like, immediately shattered. Right.
1: Right. And what's so great is that, like, in, you know, again, the protagonist vacuum, something that's so interesting about it is Richard is really the only person who knows how to use the audience in order to fill the protagonist vacuum. And already in this play, he just picks us up and puts us in his pocket. And so, like you said, you know, Edward and and George think that they are, you know, a united front forming this new family, you know, moving forward together. And Richard right away looks right at the audience and is like, that's not happening. I'm full of shit and I'm going to kill everyone. And then you're like, Jesus. Okay. You know, and then you sort of carry on with that. Um, but yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, my, my, my similar note was, it just says, here comes Richard King of inappropriate desires, because that's, you know, kind of how we move forward with that. But the, 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 I mean, I guess we'll talk more about Warwick in a little bit because I want to talk about Warwick a lot, but I want to talk about the Edward Elizabeth sex negotiation. Yeah.
0: Well, speaking of inappropriate desires, I mean, yeah. and this is when I feel like I have to mention something I've said before, which is like the word effeminate in this period, which mm-hmm. we always read, and no one uses this word, I don't think, in this play, but like, uh, it's a word that we read as being feminine and being queer, and it's like, oh, people always describe Richard the Second as effeminate. Um, but what it means is too obsessed with women. So Edward is mm. effeminate because yeah. he is too devoted to sex. Um, yeah, and yeah. is just sleeping around with everybody. There's like this crazy aside that I like had forgotten about, where like when Warwick yeah. is getting angry that he has been betrayed by Edward. He basically implies that Edward raped his niece. Like, it's really, it's just, it gets a little bit ridiculous because it's like, why are we blowing up over this wedding issue? Is it really such a big deal? But I think it's intended to kind of point to like, what a huge problem Edward's lack of sexual control is.
1: Yes. Yeah. And you know, it's really interesting because I think If you're less familiar with this play than Richard III, by the time, because, you know, not to get ahead of ourselves, but by the time that play starts, Edward is king, and so, you know, most of his problematic behavior is in the past. And the thing about this particular scene with Elizabeth, who is so Elizabeth, who will marry Edward and become a queen, um, is a widow at this yeah. point in the play. And so what's happening is that she's come to Edward to um try to hold on to her late husband's lands, basically. And so she's come to Edward as like a petitioner, basically just as a subject to be like, I need help with this land issue. Now that I'm like a woman and own property, you know, she's basically just like, I'm gonna hold on to this land. And then Edward is like, that's interesting. What if we fucked? <laughs>
0: (laughs) i mean he literally says yeah i'll give you what you want if you sleep with me
1: and then she's like well no and then he's like okay but what if we got married and then she has this interesting argument where she is like well still no because i'm too good to like i'm too good to just bang you but i'm not good enough to be queen of england so i'm gonna go
0: yeah and then he kind of coerces i mean it basically Ah. the scene ends the line he says to her at the end is say no more for thou shalt be my queen and then he says, take her away. Yeah, and then she's like, Ugh, okay. And like, she doesn't say anything. I mean, it's, yeah. that's the end. And then she just gets let off. And the next time we see her, she's married to him.
1: Right, and she's being very, I mean, by the time we see her, she's being very, um, uh, she's attempting to be very diplomatic with everyone and to sort of fill her new role. And she speaks very affectionately to him and everything. But I had forgotten how um, deeply creepy Edward's um, coercion of her is because they go back and forth a lot in this scene. It's lengthy. They
0: go back and forth a lot. And it also, like speaking of the kind of braiding that we got in the other scene, there's the point and counterpoint of- George and Richard watching this and making, like, lascivious comments the entire time. Right. So, like, she'll say something totally innocuous, and they'll just be like, yeah, I bet, like...
1: Yeah, it's sort of like being sexually coerced by the entire York family. It's like, she shows up, and then Edward is, like, the front face of it, but it is just sort of, like, a flank of creepy sexual innuendo.
0: Yeah, I mean, in theory, she can't hear what Richard and George are saying, but, like... right. But for the audience, it is this sort of surround sound harassment.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, it's interesting because the boys, yeah, the other, the boys are like, you know, they're being kind of nudge, nudge, elbowy about it. But at the same time, they're also like uh, disapproving of Edward and like worrying about what it means for them. It's weird because the brothers, the brothers kind of jockeying for power means that Edward, it's a little like Edward is breaking up with them. Yeah. Which is, which is weird because we're like, well, calm down. I mean, if he's going to get married. He's a king, but they act like it's a betrayal of them, which is weird because it's like, well, you're brothers. So, so I don't know what to tell you. Like, yeah.
0: And George does then kind of break up with him over he it does. and leaves. And then eventually right. the next act joins up with Warwick. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting in light of the conversation we've been having thus far, but that like the attempt to restore order by, I think it's really telling that the first thing Warwick does is like marriage. We need a marriage that will kind of reset everything. We'll get a new genealogy on track Mm -hmm. and the attempt to make that happen just like goes so badly. And I mean, I think that something again, like we're, I am, (laughs) this is my dissertation, Um, but Mm -hmm. Shakespeare didn't have to make her not want to marry him so much. That's right you know, she could have wanted it. And that isn't what
1: happens. No, it's not what happens. And, you know, it's like, we've talked about this before where he doesn't have to make the heterosexuality heterosexuality look and sound so bad but he does do it. And, you know, and also, I mean, the consequences of this, our work is like, okay, bye, I'm going to France. And like, you know, it's also, yes, let's get a succession on track, but it's also like, we're gonna form a political alliance. Like we're gonna get back with France. We've got to, you know, we've got to fix the Henry Margaret loss. You know, we've got to get back with France. And so he's over there doing that, being an ambassador, doing that. And then, I mean, Edward's like immediate, unquenchable lust for Elizabeth is basically like, you know, it, it, it fucks up international politics.
0: You really did need his dad to watch him. It turns out, it turns out when you leave him alone, this is what he does.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It is genuinely like who is babysitting this man, but yeah, I mean, like it's bad heterosexuality a couple of ways. Cause like patching it up with an international marriage, like wouldn't have, you know, we wouldn't have wouldn't have saved everything but like this is it's bad on a lot of levels it's bad because she didn't want to marry him and you're so right that like Shakespeare didn't need to do that and also it's bad because it's bad for the country yet again it's another marriage that's like bad heterosexuality bad for the country yeah
0: and another one where it's like yeah we end up with a son in the end but like at what
1: Mm -hmm. cost (sighs) yes yes
0: And also he gets murdered too. So
1: yeah, yeah. And also he's going to get murdered. So yeah, it's a weird, it's a, it's a real weird one.
0: Yeah, it's, um, and I I think that like, you know, we see this alternate version when Mm -hmm. Warwick goes to France, we actually meet the princess Yeah, he's trying to set up the marriage with. And they do a much more conventional, like the Mm father, the King of France is like, well, it depends what my daughter says. And the daughter's like, I've heard Edward's really hot. And actually I'm already in love with him yeah and like that's how elizabeth's scene could have gone but true shakespeare doesn't do that on purpose no
1: he doesn't and then the end the super like chilling end of that sequence as well too is that when they find out that that edward has gone ahead and married somebody else and like completely hung warwick out to dry um that princess uh lady bona Lady Bona. Um, if you
0: think about how that sounds in an English accent, you'll understand why nobody in the company I was working with could handle, we had to call her Bona because we couldn't handle her being named Boner.
1: Yeah. I mean, listen, it's very funny, but, um, her kind of final thing is that Warwick is basically like just sort of, you know, out there on a diplomatic mission with his dick in his hand, just like, okay, well, sorry. The thing I came to do is no longer possible. And, um, there's a messenger who is like, "Can I take back any uh, any any parting words to the king from any of you?" And Warwick is basically like, "Yeah, tell him, fuck you. I'm switching sides." And then Lady Bona is like, "Yeah, tell him, um, tell him I'm gonna like behave like a widow. Like basically, like I'm gonna I'm gonna wear black when he dies. Like I'm waiting for that. Like it's a very chilling. Like can't wait for him to die. I'll mourn when that happens."
0: Yeah, and. It's intense. getting a like re-recitation of the word for word threats mm-hmm. they make by the messenger mm-hmm. to Edward's face, which is very weird and funny because it's like, it's we amazing. did, we heard them say it. You don't have to say it again. And is what prompts George to be like, Ooh, I'm going to go join Warwick time to go. And then Richard again is like, I'm not because it's more beneficial for my goals to stay with mm-hmm. Edward. So it's like, yes the family is fracturing anyway, even the apparent remaining loyalty of Richard, who of course turns around and is like, bro, I'd never leave you, is fake.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, you know, Richard is already having so much fun tipping the hand to the audience, where this is where we get the sort of like, you know, I mean, we're moving ahead into Act 4 here, but like, you know, this is where we get the the whole area of him being like, "Oh my God, I've never leave you," and then looks right to the audience and is like, "I'm doing a Judas thing." He probably said this to Jesus, <laughs> like you <laughs> know. There are all these asides where he's like, "I don't mean it." Like it's literally Richard <laughs> saying one thing to Edward and looking at the audience and going, "Not." <laughs> yeah, like, turn know? around.
0: He's got his fingers crossed yeah. behind his back. Like <laughs> <It> so <laughs> is thing. though. He's just
1: like, "Psych, no." Nope. like that's literally what it is. It's really funny. Yeah. Um.
0: But I think that, yeah, the sort of end of that arc is like the marriage, which as discussed is meant to kind of create family and restore bonds, does Mm. the opposite
1: yeah it completely obliterates like yeah what little even illusion of unity like you said remains you know and so and you know it's interesting because we're cruising in on Warwick's, uh, you know final stand and demise here and Warwick is such an interesting character because he's like the perfect example of the kind of person who can last the longest in this he's been around of-
0: since part two he is fully mm-hmm. the longest lasting character across right. the two plays
1: and you know what's interesting about that? I have a theory. In the sort of Game of Thrones pantheon of this, Warwick is sort of little fingery in the mm-hmm. sense that he's, he's, he's lived because he's so brilliant at switching sides at the correct moment and sort of betting on the right horse at the right time. But I think that in our kind of terms, what that really means is that he's lived this long because he's never actually tried to fill the protagonist vacuum.
0: And then in Act 4, he makes his fatal mistake And Act Four becomes the Warwick Act. And it is extraordinary. It's amazing. Um, And leads to his death.
1: (laughs) And leads to his death, because you can't, if you actually try not to edge around the spotlight, because the thing they say about Warwick over and over is that he's like a king maker, like, and a bringer down, you know, the thing is like, he's a political player, but he he never tries. Proud
0: set her up and pull her down of kings.
1: That's right. And so it's like, it's different to try to do that than it is to stand in the center yourself. And I think that that is the sort of the, that's the Warwick thing is that if you, once you do finally stand in the center, somebody's going to get you. Yeah. you know, he just takes a long time to get there.
0: Yeah, and I think in some ways it's almost against his will because what happens is him and uh, George join forces Mm -hmm. and go to rescue Henry, who has been imprisoned. And Henry's a little bit like, oh, okay. (laughs) And the first thing he does once they've rescued him is be like, so listen, um, I want you two to be joint king. I (laughs) will be here, but you guys are in charge. And the two of them are both like, George and Warwick are both like, Oh, oh. Ooh, okay. Um, but it is like he's sort of finally uh-huh. forced to yes. step forward and take that role. Once again, by Henry refusing uh-huh. to adhere to the proper hierarchies, he's again uh-huh. choosing new successors who should not by any means be. And that's like Warwick's objection as well as he's like, this makes uh-huh. no sense. Like if it should be either of us, it should be George.
1: Uh-huh. Right, right, right. But he is sort of forced to put the target on his back, as it were, you know, in that, in that kind of moment. And, and then we just sort of move into, we move toward the kind of final confrontation between Warwick's forces and Margaret's, really. Well, well it's, so it's, it's, no. it's,
0: yeah, so Warwick is on Margaret's side, Right, so it's like right. they sort of get separated and really it becomes a showdown between the brothers. So it's, right. Uh, at one point they do, so Warwick and Margaret come, there's a battle right. which Edward loses and Edward right. gets captured. And right. then that is like, they free Henry, but then Edward escapes and kind of raises an army himself. Uh-huh. And there's all this stuff about, he's like, no, 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 I'm just going to be Duke of York. I'm just going to be, just kidding, I'm king. Um, of course. The classic, which, you know uh henry the fourth tried too yeah and actually his dad tried too everyone everyone loves everyone's done it we love it but we're clear we're building towards a showdown between Mm -hmm. you know edward and his ex-dad warwick (laughs)
1: that's right yeah i mean yeah edward and thereby you know the the york brothers and their ex-dad york because before the battle proper george defects back
0: no he defects back during the battle
1: Right, 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 right. That's right. it's
0: this big dramatic scene where uh, dramatic. Warwick is facing down Richard and Edward, and he's like, "Don't worry, George will come." And George is like, "Yes, to help my brother."
1: Yeah, and, it's amazing.
0: Um, <laughs> in my in the production of this, I worked on. We had this. I mean, admittedly, kind of silly, but like by the time you got to this point, it was mm-hmm. so satisfying moment where he like, you know, took off his <laughs> Lancaster colors and you had the York colors underneath. Yeah, you know. Mm. yeah like yeah threw it in warwick's face
1: it's a it's a very flashy move actually
0: yeah i mean it's 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 kind of almost george stepping into the protagonist's vacuum except for
1: momentarily (laughs)
0: momentarily because he kind of submits himself to edward immediately after Uh, and
1: and because because Richard has sort of already stolen the audience. It's interesting because we've, you know, there's a couple of the speeches that Richard has already had up to this point are so sort of titanically great and so personal and also so kind of far-reaching in terms of like what his plans are that it's interesting because it's like we already know more than George and Edward know about what's going to happen so it's like we know that they can't really fill the protagonist vacuum because we know what's going to happen to them yeah
0: but I think I mean as we're saying in Act 4 Warwick yeah makes a massive swing for it and gets one of the most incredible death scenes in a play filled with incredible death scenes
1: that's quite true yeah i think i mean we should let's drill down into it because some of it i mean i some of the i mean you know not that it really is gay but some of the language it's just great. is so beautiful let's go I was for just it like okay well the chunk of it that i wrote down is the end but it's long you know it's lengthy and um yeah, he's, you know, has one of those really iconic, like, you know, I'm stabbed in the gut, but still totally able to monologue deaths, yeah. where, you know, he's finally getting to kind of say goodbye to the audience. And, um, the text that I took down from it towards the end is he says, uh, lo, now my glory smeared in dust and blood, my parks, my walks, my manners that I had even now forsake me. And of all my lands is nothing left to me, but my body's length. Why, what is pomp rule, reign, but earth and dust and live we how we can yet die. We must. And that's like it. I mean, it's just such good language. It's just totally chilling. And, you know, I mean, we've heard that idea before of like the, the nothing is left, but my body's length is sort of an idea that comes up in Hotspur's death, which we talked about in Henry four one, but, but, how uh, says it about him and Warwick mm-hmm. says it about himself, mm-hmm. which is interesting. I don't know. There's something, um, the rueful sort of acceptance of somebody who is like has been a long time political player and sort of understands that like you sort of can't play the game this long and escape this end
0: yeah i mean and it really is he is the only character at this point except for henry and margaret who is left Mm. from part two um i think pretty much everybody else who kind of began with henry in those opening scenes like he's the only one except for henry Mm who is appears in the opening scene of part two, when we kind of meet mm. all the political players, he's the only one mm-hmm. who survived that long. Um,
1: yeah. And he only gets sort of, he, you know, he might've won if, if George uh, Clarence hadn't swapped sides back to the brothers, you know what I mean? With his yeah. sort of faction, it's like a last minute betrayal is the thing that does work in, in the end, you know?
0: Yeah. But I think it's also, I really, I love what you said. I think it's that he tries to fill the vacuum.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: It's the like I mean we we've we've left behind this joke but like it's the like hmm. what's wrong with you why would you yeah. ever step forward and become king because this is what happens and in his case right. it's like well I didn't Henry made me because he didn't <laughs> want to do it himself
1: Yeah. Yeah. But it's like, I think the thing that I find so poignant about that last speech is just like the, this is somebody who doesn't sort of rail against it because he understands the rules of the game. And so the poignancy is the, you know, is of being the person who is like, yeah, all right, that's what happens. They got me.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, it's so good. Uh, good. Yeah. Just incredible. Um, And such, it makes, it's such a, I mean, again, it's like thinking of the weirdness of the overall structure it's like the neatness of this tidy little act for warwick rise and fall is like it's play
1: yeah yeah i mean i think it's the sort of perfect encapsulation of that rising and falling waves breaking action of just like you know he's been here the whole time but now here he comes and there it's gone yeah you know it's really uh effective
0: yeah absolutely yeah um so obviously (laughs) Uh, He loses that (laughs) battle and um, Edward kind of moves, Edward is kind of back in power. Mm -hmm. Um, Henry's captured again, but now we've still got Margaret who is approaching with her army and we yes. move into like speaking of the things about pace you were saying before like an yeah. incredibly scattered act five tons of short short scenes yeah. I mean it's really montage It's feeling. Montage-y.
1: Yeah. um
0: just armies sweeping across the stage and making a speech and then the next one comes in kind of again mm. building up to a confrontation between this time Edward and Margaret yeah. which um becomes a mirror of the kind of combined deaths of York and Rutland as they capture mm-hmm. her and mm-hmm. her son Edward, and sort of very brutally kill Edward in front of her. In front of
1: her, yeah. Um,
0: and then refuse to kill her. And then as we so kind intense. of should be moving into the kind of closing tableau, we take a diversion when Richard yes. suddenly, like, remembers that Henry's still alive and goes to kill him. That's right. Um, And we get a really incredible scene between Richard Amazing. and Henry. Yeah. And then We give way to the kind of now Edward is king and look, here's the baby and everything should be fine. But we end with the kind of sting of Richard holding the baby, us all knowing that he's going to murder this child in like 10 years. And half the
1: people on stage. (laughs) Yeah. And it's just
0: very much, I think Mm -hmm. the idea that like, we've been, we've been pointing to this whole time, which is like yeah. the sense of a nuclear heterosexual family and a sense of a stable monarchy are an illusion
1: yeah yeah and they're just not going to happen in this world and and that there is something i mean the great thing about richard i think the sort of the in his position in that family as you say it's so great cuz with richard holding the baby it's like this family is not going to survive and it's rotten from the inside yeah. Like, because, you know, it's really interesting because the, the speaking of like the broad social canvas kind of boiling down and becoming personal, that's what I love about the distillation of the way that this play bleeds into Richard III is the thing of like, you thought that you killed all your enemies, but your enemies are in your family. And so it's this thing of like, you know, and I mean, Richard, I mean, uh, uh, Edward has that hilarious, you know, the sort of tone, of his final like couplet in the play is so funny because he's basically just like it, it literally is like and now I hope everything will be happy and fine I'm sure it will and then the plans, <laughs> and then you're just like well <laughs> well
0: <laughs> bad news
1: famous last words
0: yeah I mean I think that like yeah the feeling of I think it's more than just like the evil is in your family because I think Mm -hmm. it's not just about Richard, even though obviously he sucks up a lot of air. It's that we have created a world where Mm -hmm. heterosexuality and thus succession and thus extended periods of peace are impossible. Or just
1: not possible. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's too broken.
0: And I guess that's the way in which like- war is queer is like it's Mm. like there's been too much violence we've killed every path and the the kind of the Mm. the intimacy of murder is the only kind of intimacy left and i think that's what we get in the scene between henry and richard
1: i was gonna say we've got to talk about it although i think well before we talk about that you know just to i was really struck by the the margaret edward confrontation scene just by how brutal it is because you know margaret it, it's in a way it's the punish the sort of final punishment by them of the perversion of margaret you know and the ways in which she is too much and too you know the way they punish her for participating in the world in this way, you know, and like to make her literally beg for death, which she does and then refuse, you know, and she's just screaming at Edward to kill her and he won't. And Richard has that great line where he's sort of like, no, you probably should. And Edward's like, no, I won't. And I think it's Richard who says, why should she live to fill the world with words? Yeah. Yeah. Which I love because, of course, she comes back in Richard III, like, you know, like a with a vengeance, having not actually been killed here. But it is yes. really interesting. And so, you know, the market story continues. It's not over. But, like, her final scene in this play is horrifying.
0: Yeah, well, and I think that, like, we were talking before about the ways that the memory of Henry V comes up. And one of mm-hmm. the final references to him is comparing him to... Prince Edward baby Edward who gets murdered in this scene and right. like Margaret's like rallying the troops and one of the other soldiers is like um something like the image of thy glorious grandfather lives in thee of Edward uh, yeah. and it's the idea of like what if the thing that they are vengeance killing is the only hope for England
1: right yes like what yes. if this is the
0: final crushing of a future for this country
1: yeah yeah that's a whole thing as well and um although actually yeah now i had a different thought is it help me with this with the family tree and the sort of succession here because (laughs) there is a there is a moment of prophecy earlier in this play that we kind of jumped over where henry when he meets is it baby richmond yeah which yeah there is a moment where Henry meets baby Richmond who will later come back and sort of end the War of the Roses or whatever by killing Richard III and starting the Tudor dynasty and whatever. And Henry has a sort of freaky moment where he lays hands on him and has like a seeing moment where he's like, you will be the, like, the hope of England or whatever. And it made me think, of course, of that thing, the great thing you said last time about how um, when prophecy comes up in history plays, it's that thing of like all, the audience are all prophets because we know what will happen.
0: Yeah. I mean, and, and it gets referenced again in Richard III when Richard's yeah. like, ugh, one time he met Richmond and said he'd be king. That's some nonsense. But yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> but it's interesting that it's like the, the sort of in and aside bestowing of this hope, which like doesn't kind of get talked about ever again in the play, because yeah. everyone's a little busy with murder.
1: <laughs> murdering everyone. Is
0: like a, again, it's like, it's a mm-hmm. sexless. Yeah. Succession.
1: Yeah, and it's like a confer it, right, it's like it's you know what? It's like um fr- because from Henry who disinherited his own son to meet yeah. this kid, randomly have this thing like do this prophecy. It's like kingship by immaculate conception.
0: Exactly.
1: That's what it is. It's tra- it's transference,
0: yeah. Exactly. And this is the the thing that I find really striking about the the language the brothers use when they're murdering little Edward is yeah. the thing that Richard says is like, you know, uh silence the likeness of this railer here in regards to Margaret, it's a sense of like, he is too much his mother's son to live. He is the other product of this like immaculate conception Mm. or Mm -hmm. that's not what that word means. Um, but But, you know, this virgin birth, um, but in this instance, he is all Margaret's.
1: Right. Exactly. So he has to die. And right. I just thought it was just interesting to me because I did not remember that that moment existed when Henry Mm -hmm. meets Richmond and has that moment. And it's like, and it's weird because Henry, like, you know, is a person who has no conviction about anything. And like, all of a sudden, it's like something possesses him and he says this thing. And it does feel like a sort of, like a sort of immaculate conception kind of magic moment.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Except sidebar, Immaculate Conception refers to the fact that Mary was born without sin. Jesus right. was not the Immaculate Conception. It was the virgin right, right, birth. I right, went right, to Catholic right. school. Um, <laughs> <I was just laughs> but yeah. But yes, um, absolutely. And I think it, I mean, it, I couldn't help but think of a play we'll talk about soon, I'm sure, mm-hmm. Richard II, where mm-hmm. Richard likewise kind of becomes so much more a king once he's not king anymore.
1: Yeah.
0: And I feel like the same, you were talking about how Richard has sort of won the war of the audience, but I think- mm-hmm. There are many places in which Henry kind of mm-hmm. begins to win it back, but he can't seem mm-hmm. to manage it while he's king. And I think a place where he, I mean, until he gets, I think his last scene with Richard is Amazing. the kind of culmination of that battle. And I think it's the yeah. argument that like, really, he wins. The only way Richard mm-hmm. can win it is by killing him.
1: Yeah. 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 Let's talk about that scene. Um, thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: I mean, so yes, Henry's in prison. He's been in prison. We've kind of forgotten that he exists and yeah. Richard breaks in and is like, Hey, and Henry up at the top of the scene is like, Oh, you're here to kill me.
1: <laughs> and then Richard of course is being coy and is like, I'm just hanging out, you know? And it's just like, it cause like, like you said, it really feels like the end of the play before Richard comes here to do this. And then he's like, I'm just going to go to the tower real fast. <laughs> have an errand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then they have like a long uh sort of metaphorical exchange about Icarus and Daedalus that they sort of share. Like it turns into one of those philosophical sort of debates that only happens in Shakespeare when someone is like about to die.
0: Yeah. Well, and it's a level of kind of just like intimacy and mm-hmm. sitting and having a conversation. Yeah. That you don't see almost anywhere else in the play and it culminates yeah. in Henry being like, "I see you." and you are evil through and through, there is nothing redeeming about you Mm -hmm. as a person.
1: Yeah. And this
0: really fucks Richard up and then he stabs him.
1: Yeah. And I mean, this is the thing where like, uh, and you know, I, my apologize for this. I just have to step on my, this is my sort of friendly neighborhood, Richard three apologist soapbox is I think what's so brilliant about it. And like you said, the intimacy of it, of how much, how perceptive Henry is and how much he like knows about Richard and can see about him in this moment is like because also Henry asks him to get on with it and he won't because Richard is sort of being a cat with a mouse and because Henry has that great line I think I'll paraphrase it where where he says uh he says kill me with your weapons not your words yeah he's just like literally could we get the knife out like I'm ready to go right because Richard's like
0: being like I killed your son like he's just pulling out everything
1: he's doing it and so the thing that Henry says to to win it essentially to spur it along is like like you said he says you know you're evil you're you're unredeemable i know what you're gonna do you're gonna ruin the country but the thing that he says that makes richard go ahead and stab him really it is he 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 gets into the area of like you were a disturbing child and your mother didn't love you <laughs> I mean he straight up goes right for like you know the you know he was he is born with teeth stuff which is such a really interesting like thing but he goes right for like your mom was afraid of you and never loved you everybody thought you were creepy from the day you were born and Richard is just like all right that's enough <laughs> like and then he goes for it but it's uh it's a really interesting thing and I mean it's not really a moment of prophecy that he has post stab as he's dying it's just sort of the continuation of the thing but it's he does his sort of final words are about how Richard is going to destroy England basically. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean I think mean, I think it's a bit of a moment of prophecy. Bit of
1: prophecy. It's a little light prophecy energy.
0: Yeah. Um but it's I think that the thing that's will save will save the psychoanalysis of Richard for when we do yeah. that play because I think yeah. we strongly disagree about it. Um oh, Interesting. Uh but I the thing that I feel like is just so kind of I mean the thing that we're saying there's just there's a quiet mm-hmm. and an intimacy mm-hmm. and a sense of two people looking at each other and well of Henry really looking at and understanding Richard and yeah. Richard like everybody else looks at Henry and can't understand him at all. Yeah. And actually I think there's something there's something really interesting in hmm. both sides of that equation because I think that's yeah. something we've talked about Um, a lot in other plays. I'm thinking of like Hamlet is the queerness of the person who, as you die, kind of looks at you and knows you and can tell your story. And I think there's Mm. something in the fact that never does anyone understand Henry
1: at all. No, no, you're right. It's really interesting. It's really interesting. And I think like something else that I was just thinking about is the fact that like to return to this thing that we sort of brought up and then and left behind a bit of like what is wrong with you if you really want to become king what's so great about the play landing in this scene between these two men is that they are the extreme halves of that equation Henry is the person who wants to be king the least and Richard is the person who wants to be king the most and I think (laughs) that that is why they fundamentally like Henry can look at Richard and 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 that's what I think he can't fathom is like, I see you, but I don't like, like what is wrong with you? And then I think Richard, of course he can't understand Henry and who he is because how could you be a man who could be King and then do that with it?
0: Yeah. But I think it's, I I totally agree. But I think it's also like, it's more, he's Henry goes unseen by anyone. No one ever. I mean, and then this is like a a thing, Mm. I think we talked about, I meant to talk about last time, which is that like, if you're trying to read him as queer for his, the way he ignores Margaret, he doesn't have any person he's turning to instead. Like in that play, it's explicitly that he's turning to God. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't come off quite so actively religious here though in this scene, he is like praying um, when Richard finds him. But the sense of like, there's nobody for him. He isn't unique in the world. Everyone Mm -hmm. else is kind of operating on the same wavelength and competing for the same things. And I think like understand each other Mm. and what they're trying to do, but nobody understands Henry. And
1: yeah, I
0: wonder if that is in part where his sense of Mm. in the kind of juvenile way of the word, like queerness comes from, he's just
1: odd. Odd. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, really interesting. I mean, I think, I think that is the thing really is that his, his solitude is complete. Yeah, And in a way, that's why it feels like I, I think it's interesting to consider. uh, I hadn't, I had, even though he does speak to the audience a fair amount from a place of kind of distance and commentary in this play, I had never considered him as re-entering the protagonist war. You know what I mean? Because it doesn't feel like he wants very much from us because I don't feel like he thinks we'll understand him either.
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And you know, it's
1: like, oh no, go ahead.
0: Oh no, but, but he's still kind of, he has no one else to talk to. So, right.
1: but he talks to us from a place of indifference, not a place of need. Yes and that's what's so interesting is because most people who turn to the audience do so out of some kind of need and it feels like henry is far away even from us yeah. um at this moment i do have to tell a very silly small anecdote about the fact that i've never seen this play in in isolation but i've seen several conflations of it and um i did see the eva Van Hova conflation of the all of this sort of history cycle called kings of war and it goes from henry v through richard III, like through all the sixes in the middle and uh, he did a thing with Henry that is like the abiding image of, of the play to me, which is in the big speech that he has, where he's like, I'd rather be a shepherd than a king. And it's a little bit Jesus-y because of all the sheep metaphors and oh, things, yeah. you know, oh, there's yeah. a lot of religion in there. Cause when you were saying like, when we were saying he's not quite as religious in this play, I, the one exception I feel like is the sort of extended shepherd metaphor. And in that production, in that production. um, There was stuff on stage, but there was also GoPros and video because it's Eva Hova, And so people leave the stage and do things. And um, there was a crazy moment where Henry, during that speech, rounded a corner. He left the stage and walked into the corridor. So he literally retreated from the audience. And so we were just hearing voiceover. We couldn't see him. And he rounded a corner into this hallway and the hallway was filled with sheep. like actual real sheep oh my god that were just backstage at bam and i later learned that it was not video recorded they were cheap and so literally henry six with a gopro leaves the stage and then just murmurs this monologue while walking through a corridor of sheep
0: I mean, I always want more live animals in theater, but also, obviously, I hate that. Um,
1: <laughs> I wondered what you thought about that. It was so funny. I mean, it Anyways. sounds
0: hilarious, but it is like he can't get away. That's the whole point. Yeah. He, he doesn't get to leave. He, you know, he finds this moment of solitude in that scene and then immediately mm-hmm. has to watch these two men mm-hmm. mourn their dead relatives. And even Congrats. I mean, I think that's even the energy of like the scene mm-hmm. with Richard is he's like, yeah if you can't leave me alone, just kill me. Like, stop
1: <laughs> making you listen
0: to people talk.
1: He's truly the guy who just wanted to be
0: left alone. He is. Um. But yeah, and it's like, I think- Yeah, there's just something in, I mean, I think it connects to what I was saying a minute ago that it's like the only thing that can like enable even the intimacy that's achieved in that scene is that it's the prelude to a murder. Like there's no Mm -hmm. space left in the world where two people can just like have a conversation and try Mm -hmm. to understand each other.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, you know, in a way, that thing I said earlier about how it is such a pacey play, there are only a couple of places where it slows down. And they are really surreal moments. I mean, one is the scene where Henry witnesses the the, the father and the son and that morning, I think that's really one. And then this scene feels kind of slow to me too, because even though it's very tense, because we know it's going to end in a death. It is one of those things where it's like, let's actually stop and talk about what we're doing here for a minute. And in a way, they have the leisure to do that, because the end is a foregone conclusion there's nothing like there is really like we know what's gonna happen but there's no suspense
0: yeah well because henry has no fight in him he's not gonna pull a richard ii and like try and fight his way out of this like
1: no and you know you're yeah yeah we will talk talk about richard ii because it's like he's in such a similar position to henry for so much of it but he feels so differently about what's happening to him than henry does
0: Yes. And then, I mean, yeah, the scene concludes with this incredibly long speech by Richard where I think if we're thinking about the protagonist battle, this is when he is like, it's, I'm, it's mine now. Yes. And we can kind of set this up, basically gives a version of the speech he gives again at the beginning of Richard III where he mm-hmm. expresses his intention to kill everybody because he feels like he doesn't fit in. Mm-hmm. And uh, we kind of go into this closing tableau knowing exactly how hollow
1: it is. Yeah. Yeah. Because like you say, it's like, you know, we've already murdered the, we've murdered the idea of the family nine different ways. So it's just, you know, we're, we're not in that kind of universe.
0: Yeah. And when you have destroyed every hope of (laughs) connection, except for with the man you're about to murder, uh, (laughs) that's kind of gay.
1: It's kind of gay.
0: It's, it's, yeah, I mean, it's certainly like a very, it's like queer in the sort of nihilistic chaos sense of no past, no future. No um, past,
1: no future, only the present when you can have a long intimate conversation with the guy who's gonna stab you. Beautiful.
0: Mm-hmm. So we'll finish off this series uh, <laughs> next time with the Sixth, part one, very different energies. Um, mm. I think you will go back to being mad at me for making us do these plays. No, it's fine. It's, I have time time
1: for, I have time for Joan. It's fine.
0: We had to do where, I mean, we're doing them all. So, you know, there we go. But in the interim, uh, until that time, you know, follow us on whatever podcast place you get your podcasts, leave a rating, (laughs) leave a review, um, give us a follow on Instagram.
1: Yes. At this Shakespeare is gay
0: or on this shakes is gay on Twitter. That's S H A X. And we'll
1: see you soon. And goodbye.